0: What exactly do highly successful, purpose-driven CEOs and entrepreneurs actually do? The CEO role is one of the most mysterious positions in business, and a purpose-driven CEO is a different breed entirely. I know, because I coach purpose-driven CEOs. My job gives me a unique, behind-the-scenes vantage point into their world. For years, I've wished there was a way I could share the stories I hear, the risky calls that big wins and the big, big courage of these unique leaders, because they have so much to offer anyone who's leading a business or anyone who wants to lead a purpose-driven life. This is the inspiration for the Good Company Podcast. If you want to be more productive, attract the best people, and achieve more positive impact, stay with us. I'm Barbara Shannon, your host, and you are in good company. Today, I'm speaking with Vaughn Tone Quinlivan, CEO of Futuro Health. Vaughn is a nationally recognized futurist, strategist, and visionary in workforce development. She was named a White House Champion of Change by the Obama administration, served as executive in residence at Stanford's Institute for the Future and was Executive Vice Chancellor for Workforce and Digital Futures at California Community Colleges, the largest higher education system in the nation. Vaughn is a changemaker who has inspired an unprecedented level of innovation, collaboration, and partnerships between education, government, healthcare, and business. Listening to Vaughn inspires us to go beyond what we think we can do, to think bigger, And to be more creative. It's a great honor to introduce her on the podcast. Vaughn, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Barbara. Thank you for having me. Before we get into the exceptional work that you're doing, I just wanted to start a bit with your personal story, because that too is really compelling and interesting. And I'm sure it has much to do with the way and kind of work that you're doing right now. So tell us a little bit about your journey from where you began to where you are today.
1: Well, Barbara, in 1975, my family escaped from the Vietnam War and actually came to the United States, settled in Hawaii. So my beginnings here in the U.S. was marked by English as a second language, lunch token, food stamps, and many of the social services that helped families land on their feet in their situation. This experience, as well as the knowledge that education was a key gateway to allow me economic, social, and social mobility has been a source of grounding in the work that I do in workforce development. You mentioned my public sector work, but prior to that, I actually got my start in workforce development in the private sector with a company of 20,000 men and women where twenty to fifty percent of the workforce was facing imminent retirement, and so the 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 company, but also the industry, was very worried that it would have an exit of its workforce, what they call the silver tsunami, and so began putting in place a workforce development program in order to begin sourcing quality talent, but quality and diversity in order to better reflect the, the communities that the company served and do so in a reliable way because there's nothing better than a reliable talent pool
0: and nothing harder to find so so you're in this large public company and even back then you're facing a talent challenge i guess because your workforce was aging and you're looking at you know massive retirements and so how did you approach it what was your thinking
1: interestingly enough i was in a role that was right hand to the uh, ceo and chairman of the company And so I had a bird's eye view and had the ability to talk to all different departments and divisions. And I kept hearing at this time, I wasn't in workforce. I kept hearing from people, the hiring supervisors, that they were struggling to find quality and diversity sort of in the same phrase when it came to hiring. And they talked about how hard they work, how they even work with their community-based organizations to organize special pre-employment testing sessions. And at the end of the day, they would get maybe out of 30 candidates, one who would pass the pre-employment test. And that's even before the drug tests and the criminal background check, tests. So it was a bit of a deflating experience for the company who was trying to make effort at sourcing a, a quality talent pool they were jumping to the conclusion that maybe there weren't quality, diverse talents out there. And I knew from my own experience as an immigrant and knowing the communities out there that had they known, had these communities known about these great jobs, these were jobs that maybe started in the 60,000 and up. If they knew about these great jobs, certainly communities from uh, underserved communities would be stumbling all over themselves to line up for these great jobs. compete for these great jobs if they were only made aware.
0: So even though the company was going through, quote unquote, community-based organizations, they still weren't really reaching the talent pool that you knew was out there.
1: So the company made an effort to reach out. However, they couldn't get the quality that they wanted. So they were very disappointed in the process. And I knew that, that you could get quality and diversity in the talent pool, However, you had to approach it from a different way. And so I pitched to the, the CEO and the back then the incoming SVP of HR. And I said, let me show the company how to do this better. We can create a quality, diverse and reliable talent pool, but we're going to do it by leveraging the public infrastructures out there in order to get this. And um, with that, I call it this my moment to fall from grace. I was on the 29th floor, which is where all the executives were, you know, with a glass office view of the Bay Bridge and moved from the 29th floor down to the second floor where HR was located. It was dark with not many amenities and began the hard work of building uh, workforce pipelines and and, uh, strategic relationships with the public institutions
0: well we're on the we're on the edge of our seats here so what did you do what was the new thing
1: yeah so the model the workforce development model the program was called the power pathway program and the model rested on three legs each leg would do what they do did best so the first leg is the employer what they did best was to articulate what they wanted to hire for and then to hire second leg was a set of community-based organizations or public workforce boards who could do a much better job reaching out into diverse communities to source candidates and pre-screen them and case-manage them through this education and training process. And then the third leg would be the education providers, specifically the community colleges were were who we started with first, although this can extend to the four-year institutions as well. And the education institutions would be designing short-term training programs that would close the gap between what the employers wanted and where the incoming students were starting. And so if you think about those three legs, each focused on the competencies that they knew how to do best and brought their own resources to the table as part of their own contribution to the workforce development program. I want to tell you a little bit of my fish story here, especially in, in a period of low employment where you're casting the net a little wider in order to uh, generate the quality talent pool. I need to tell you my fish story. So we had put together the program, sourced all these candidates that were very attractive to our local supervisors, and put them through the training program that was custom designed. And there was this one young gentleman from a diverse background that the supervisor was very excited to hire on the back end once he passed the formal pre-employment testing process. Interestingly enough, when we got the list, his name had disappeared. What had happened when we looked into it was that when he was 15 years old, he had gone fishing and he caught a fish that was too small. That resulted in a ticket. And as a young man, he did not pay the ticket. So it went to court he didn't show up in court, you know, not knowing any better. And then eventually that ticket moved its way into becoming a felony, a nonviolent felony. So this young man with all this promise had no idea that he had a criminal record. And of course, all these great jobs out there, once the employers did a background check, they would eliminate him from consideration and would not be even disclosing that they had Found this because it was a liability for them to communicate it. They would just go on to the next candidate. So it took uh, this level of, of work where then we asked for the community partners to work with the young man to expunge the record. And we were able to hire him and he went on to become a great employee. And this program actually single handedly diversified the frontline workforce of the company in a way that, that brought. Tremendous talent into the company was very well regarded by the hiring su- uh, supervisors.
0: What a remarkable story. And where are we today in terms of companies, large and small, in the hiring process? With regard to this background check situation, certainly everyone is looking to hire the most talented workforce. And today there is an active push to have a more diverse workforce. Are you educating? Are you finding that companies today realize that they need to be prepared because you're going to have to have staff and a process in order to pursue background misdemeanors, or in this case of felony, that actually are not relevant to the person's ability to perform? Where are we today with that? I think there's
1: a greater review of hiring criteria, not just around the background check, but really what is the level of skill set that we need. Many jobs can be done with an associate's degree, industry certification, and not necessarily a bachelor. It's almost like over hiring, and so there's also a movement to hire less based on degrees, but based on demonstrated competencies and portfolios. So I think there's a lot of rethinking about HR processes and what are the gates that we put in. And those gates are automated by applicant tracking systems. So in order to sort of expand the talent circle and look and move from a talent puddle to a talent pool, companies are beginning to relook at their talent strategies. And we encourage more more of that. One of the things, Barbara, that, that I've observed is that with large companies, large companies tend to have uh, resources and staffing to do the kind of work that I did when I was in the private sector, to set up these custom programs. However, small and medium companies struggle with resources, and I would suggest that they leverage and come together through their chamber, to their industry association, to pool their needs and efforts so that it's a better use of everybody's collective resources.
0: Yes, that's great. I'd love uh, along that line if you would share, when we talked, you mentioned an initiative with the Entertainment Group and Disney where, I don't know if it was that one where supply chain was involved, but it also involved small and medium businesses. Can you give a little more color and example to how small and mid-market companies might take advantage of the model?
1: Yes. Let me take you to one that's right here in Silicon Valley. It's called NextFlex, which is a trade association focused on uh, technologies embedded in flexible fabrics. What they did was they partnered with a set of community colleges who then brought in their high school partners and together touched about 2,000 students who would form teams. They would learn about the technology. They would learn about business and formation of business cases and business pitches. And so they would team up and, and then enter almost like a shark tank competition where they would pitch their ideas with employers and members from the communities making comments and judging. And you can just see the inspiration in the students. You could see that some of them will eventually go to careers that are going to be more R&D and science related. Others will go on to the technician level, but you can see the inspiration as they underwent the experience hosted by this trade association. And it didn't take a lot of resources from any one company, but yet generated interest in in the industry and all the the companies that were around uh, the table involved in the trade association. It's a terrific idea on the side of the employers, then you're spreading the effort amongst multiple employers, but there's also an additional benefit. And this is what I call the issue of the fire hose versus the backyard hose. Most jobs in a company drip out in onesies and twosies. That's the pattern of uh, hiring. However, for higher education to put together custom programs, like what we're talking about, they need to have at least a cohort or class 15 to 25 in order to make it uh, work financially. And so in order to kind of match the hiring pattern with the output of students, it's best to have a consortium of employers who then pull together their hires so that there's a good match between the students being put through and then the hiring patterns of employers. And and so th- there's value in working together collaboratively and working through a traders association, which they already, you know, companies already belong to makes a lot of sense.
0: That's great. So how can I help my clients and our community of mid-market CEOs, even just in the Bay Area, to stay abreast of any of these consortiums that perhaps are already in existence and to be able to get plugged into that. Is there a channel you can suggest or should you and I talk afterwards? How do I plug my people into this? Across
1: the state, there's been a lot of work to organize by industry sectors, with especially within a region. And so there are points of contacts for every community college. There's already a set of programming in place and a single point of contact for the employers to talk to about their needs to see if there's a good fit. So, for example, at the San Francisco chamber event, one of the gentlemen stood up and said, Hey, I don't have one of these highfalutin tech companies. I have a a company that has all these stores like bookstores and retail stores, and I want to hire locally. Well, where can I go? So there's a set of programs across the community colleges called Retail Ready, and those students already live in the Bay Area and understand the high cost of living and would love to find a way to stay local. And so being able to source students from those programs, finding the faculty who teach those programs, and then hiring from those programs help you know provide a talent pool. And community colleges, for example, are naturally diverse and reflect the communities around them. So you'll get the diversity and the quality by leveraging these public institutions that are around you.
0: Well, that's great. I'm definitely going to follow up and put together probably a resource list. I think is what a lot of mid market CEOs would need, and maybe you can help me with that. <laughs> Surely. You know, another question I wanted to ask you was: you grew public investment in this model from 100 million to one billion dollars. Can you tell us about that? What did you do that supercharged the growth? And is there one or two things that you think uh, most explains that level of growth?
1: Sure. Uh, and maybe I can just give a little bit of background of my transition from the private sector into the public sector. So, as I mentioned, I worked on setting up these workforce development programs for my company and actually took the company from having no opinion in workforce development. And in two years, it became a nationally recognized industry best practice. And we tested the program to try out different occupations, different geographies. Did the model still hold? And, And the answer was yes. And then the governor, Governor Brown, had asked me to then serve at the helm of the workforce mission, driving the workforce mission of the community colleges. Well, this was during the worst of times, which was the at the recession. So there was not very much uh, money to go around. Actually, it was a shrinking pot. And so we were looking at the dilemma of how do you stretch the dollar? Because these programs in career technical education were very important, but they were also much more expensive to offer because of the amount of equipment and labs. So imagine if you're training an emergency medical technician, there's a, a lot of simulation equipment that you need that you don't need for teaching an English class, which really just requires a whiteboard. And so we were just trying to stretch the dollar and have more coordination and collaboration within the region. So what we were able to do is focus on doing what matters for jobs and the economy and really just begin to focus investment on the industry sectors that drove regional economies. And through this and the subsequent set of strategies, we began to change out the portfolio of programming so that there was so much more experimentation, innovation, and collaboration.
0: Huge thanks to Vaughn Tone Quinlivan for her invaluable contribution to building the diverse talent that we need for our workforces and in our world. If you'd like to connect with Vaughn, please do so on Twitter, at Workforce Vaughn. That's at Workforce V-A-N. If you like what you're hearing, you'll find all the Good Company podcast recordings on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you're curious about working with me, send me an email, barbara at shannon-solutions.com. This episode and all the Good Company podcasts are produced with the help from the amazing team at Resonate Recordings. Till next time, stay strong and carry on. I'm Barbara Shannon, and you've been listening to the Good Company Podcast.